Hey, listeners, this is Marsha Epstein in Lawrence, Kansas, and this is Talk With Me. And today is the middle of May, May 15th, 2018. Cool things are always happening. Skies are beautiful in Kansas. Things are green. It's good. It's good to be out. I don't know if it's like this wherever you are, but here there are so many additional cool things to do when it's spring and summer. Lots of amazing art things happen. Um, Although this isn't yet happening, I'm gonna give a shout out to an amazing project that is forthcoming in Lawrence, Kansas, a people of color, specifically women of color mural that hopefully will get approval this very night from the Lawrence City Commission and will be on one of the walls of the Lawrence Public Library exterior at 7th and Vermont. The design, the conversations that went into the design, the artists who will create the mural, the community members who will help create the mural are all women of color. And that is an important part of our community, our community's culture, and the whole world, folks. Don't forget that, the whole world. So I am so excited about those women artists who are leading this project and it will be a very good thing for Lawrence and other people who wander in the downtown Lawrence area to experience this mural. Like many others that are around lots of communities, it's it, they amaze me. I love being surprised turning a corner and seeing this building that's covered with this amazing art. Well, yeah, I like art. I like lots of kinds of art. And the main art that is really conducive to talk with me, of course, is word art, written works. And often for me, that gets to coincide with somebody's coming to Lawrence, Kansas to do a reading. And today my guest will be reading at Raven Bookstore. If you've ever listened to me talk with with a writer, you know I love independent bookstores. I believe in buying local. That means buy from the artist when you can, buy from the small press when you can't buy directly from the writer, buy from the small independent bookseller who probably hosts the best readings in your community. Well, maybe you have a university and they do cool stuff too. Maybe you have three universities as we do in our county. But anyway, um, I'm, I'm a big fan of supporting art that where we spend our time and money is really showing what's important to us. And there are many books that are available very affordably. Give up a couple of those fancy coffee drinks at that local coffee bar and instead buy the book. Anyway, my guest today is Andy Farkas. Welcome. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. This is cool because we have never met before you came in to do this show. And you were doing one of those things called a big tent reading at Raven Bookstore, which means you've been highly recommended and selected to be one of the featured readers there. Always a cool thing that happens. And and it's on uh, Thursday, the 24th of May, this one that you're in. That's right. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about you and then we'll wander and find out more. <laughs> uh, so I am uh, a um, English professor at Washburn University. Mm-hmm. Uh, my area is fiction, uh, although I write lots of different things. Uh, right now, um, I'm working on creative nonfiction. Uh, uh, it's kind of memoir, but also kind of personal essay uh, that I've been working on. And I only I started working on that because I took six years and wrote a novel. And when I finished, I just wanted to write something different. Uh-huh. Uh, but I've also written plays that have uh, been performed. Uh, so uh, those are the kinds of things that I'm that I've been working on, uh-huh. uh, and and working at Washburn is is fantastic. And I've been kind of an academic nomad. I've been at schools in Tennessee, Alabama, Illinois, Montana, uh, and now in Kansas. So uh, I'm all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> what what brings you to those different places? Like, have, how how's it happened that you've been at a lot of different colleges, universities? Uh, well, I, I realized when I was an undergrad that I wanted to continue on into graduate school and that really, I wanted to stay in academia. Uh, Uh, so consequently I applied all over the place and at first I didn't get in anywhere. Uh, but then over time, uh, I did finally get in places. So Mm -hmm. the university of Tennessee was the first graduate program that I was in. Mm -hmm. Uh, and 
the degree that I really, really wanted was the MFA. And that's, I got that at the university of Alabama, uh, where I worked with Michael Martone and he's, I definitely consider him my mentor. Uh, but yeah, so, uh, part of it is kind of random too, uh, because you apply and while you're applying, people say, Oh, you might want to try this place or this place or this place. Uh And you just apply and you like, you wait to find out where you get in. Yeah. That's where you end up going. Yeah. Yeah. I get that part. Like grad school stuff is, there's that part of you get to choose where you apply to and then you wait to see what opportunities you are granted. You know? yeah. yeah, that's absolutely right. And then right. which of them you can afford to go to. And the- <laughs> <laughs> so most were you teaching during grad school? Is that the way that works in other programs too? Yeah, I, yeah. I taught at every single one of my yeah. schools. I, yeah. I had one uh, one year at Alabama where I was on a fellowship. So mm-hmm. I didn't have to teach then. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the University of Illinois at Chicago, uh, I had one semester. Everybody gets one semester after they uh, do their okay. uh, preliminary exams. Uh-huh. So. And so you said you wanted to go into academia. So there's a part of you that, that I assume that means teaching in terms of what I, I realize there's more to academia than only teaching, but, but that that's part of what you want to be doing. Is that right? Uh, right. Particularly uh, running workshops. Uh-huh. I absolutely love running workshops. Uh-huh. Uh, I've, I've met writers who don't like workshop nearly uh, as much, but I absolutely adore it. Uh, I think it's fantastic. Uh, sometimes, sometimes people think that like, there's a like specific workshop model story, but I don't believe that at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, I feel like as long as you're being more descriptive in your feedback rather than prescriptive, then you're going to be fine. Uh, you're not going to like make everybody write the same way. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, I love seeing all of the different uh, kinds of writing that my students bring in and uh, as they're exploring, figuring out like what kind of writers they want to be and like directing them to uh, writers who do something that's somewhat similar to what they're doing. And a lot of times they don't even realize that, particularly at the undergrad stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so once once they you know, once they start finding these other things, then they start moving forward with their writing. And that's actually, I just found out the other day that one of my students that I had uh, in Montana just graduated with his MFA. And uh-huh. he told me that the reason that he ended up going on was because of the workshop that he had awesome. with me. So so when you say workshop, is that separate from like during the academic semester? Oh, no, no, that's, okay. that's uh, so my advanced fiction writing class at Washburn, uh, and the uh, fiction writing classes that I've taught elsewhere, those mm-hmm. have been workshops. Okay. So, yeah. Do you sometimes do shorter workshops that, that other people participate in, you know, in terms of like people in the community who might be part of, say, Kansas Authors Club or some other writing group? I haven't thus far, uh-huh. uh, but I mean, I would. So, uh-huh. but thus far, it's always been in the academic setting. Uh-huh. So. Cause that's, that's one of those things that there, it, because of sort of the variety of people that I talk to around the Midwest as well as other places, that idea of you know people providing workshops, whether they're a writer in residence or as something that they do in the community that they live in, it's it's a really um, it's I will put it in a very personal way. So Diane Silver and Annette Billings, who are two writers. Um, Annette's based in Topeka. I don't know if you've ever encountered her. Um, she's an amazing performance poet as well as poet on the page. And she's she's very close to Dennis Edsel Jr., who's one of your colleagues right. at Washburn. Um, Annette and Diane Silver, who's um, in a lot of ways known as a political activist um, and is also a writer uh, and poet, they, they teach um, a workshop periodically that's called Harvest. And it's this combination of encouraging writing and connecting to hope in our writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it was a great experience. Um, I went with a friend. Um, I do not consider myself a writer. The more I read, the less I consider myself as being anywhere close to that. People go, just do it. Write something short, you know. I, I get... <laughs> Although that, that's a trap. Because writer, <laughs> writing short is d- more difficult than writing long. So. <laughs> but anyway, it was, it was a really great experience. And it was, you know, it was 
my interest in writing and other arts is really because, as I said to you before we were on air, art is something that brings people together and it brings out important communication. And I realize that some art is for entertainment because there are a lot of kinds of art and entertainment. As I say, without laughter, we would explode, and that is not pretty. You know, right. we we need we need levity. We need all kinds of things. But but I I believe so much in how art brings people together, and so those workshop opportunities I would imagine always are personal as well as my writing skills might improve from doing this. And so I, I think that's a a really cool thing to do. And as as somebody who's lived so long in a university community and and see the sort of as they used to say town gown that kind of split between you know if you're pretty much immersed in the university or pretty much immersed in the immersed in the community outside of the university you know sometimes we don't benefit enough from those interactions that we could have you know so so long long encouragement go do a writing workshop man tell us about it <laughs> Do you want that people can experience it? They're not a Westburn student. Because it's a cool thing. It's a really cool thing. Yeah. yeah. So teaching, what about teaching do you like? That that interests me too. What about teaching? Uh, well, with, uh, with workshop, uh, it is mostly seeing people uh, going after something that they they are really interested in. Uh-huh. Uh, so I've I've always uh, loved watching um, students develop their writing. And then when I was uh, a student in the workshop, I uh, I really enjoyed like getting feedback, but also like giving feedback. And I continue, uh, of course, doing that mm-hmm. as uh, as a teacher myself. Uh, whenever I'm, you know. Uh, interacting with the students. Mm-hmm. Uh, workshops, you have a better chance that the students are in there because they really, really want to be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are plenty of other classes that you teach sometimes that are mandatory classes, uh-huh. and the students don't want to be there quite so much. But in uh, in workshops, they definitely do, and so that's really exciting. And it's it's also really exciting to see people who are absolutely you know devoted to and interested in art uh-huh. Uh, so that is, uh, that's what excites me. Uh-huh. Uh, and then my other classes are like that too. So I just taught a cult films class. Uh, and it's the same thing is this, uh, introducing the students to these films that they've never seen before, sometimes uh-huh. never even heard of before. Uh-huh. Uh, and then talking uh, with them about those films and what's like going on in them. Uh-huh. Uh, it's, it's sometimes surprising because I'm so used to movies like that. Cause I've kind of been around cult films. Well, not kind of, I've been around cult films <laughs> since I was a teenager. Uh, and then films like uh, my dad, uh, showed my sister and I movies like the Marx Brothers movies and stuff like that when we were growing up. And I just assumed that everybody did that. And then I would start like talking about Marx Brothers movies and everybody else that I know was like, what are you talking about? So wait, wait, wait. So Marx Brothers are considered cult film? No, no, no. Oh, I, oh. That was, that's just a historical okay, thing. Okay. Uh, but no, the uh, then later on it was more cult film for me. Uh-huh. Uh, and so because I got so used to those, uh, I just assume that my students have, you know, heard of all of these and uh-huh. seen them. And I'm like, no, maybe I need to pick other movies. And then they say, oh, I've never seen any of those movies before or never heard of any of those movies. It's before. very interesting. It, it kind of reminds me of a conversation that I had earlier in the spring or winter with uh, Michael Deaker, who is an actor who has, uh, in, in Lawrence, who has performed in Rocky Horror no. annually. And Anthias Skovas, who from the um, Lead Center, and we've had different people from the Art Center. We were talking about productions, plays, films that have themes related to gender and sexual orientation, and how the different ages of audience members and sort of the world that they've come up in create such different meaning to these pieces. So, so that was headed towards with Rocky Horror, how great it would be to have the production this year accompanied by some panel discussion talkbacks of people of different ages and really, you know, kind of bringing up what, what 
what it was when it was created in the time and what it means today, you know? Right, and uh, Rocky Horror was a big influence on me. Uh, I, Friends of mine and I, we would go ev- just about every single weekend. In fact, I think one of my friends went something like 20 weeks in a row uh, to, to see it, and it was the performance, uh, and then some people in the crowd would get dressed up. Uh-huh. Uh, we never really got dressed up, but we knew all of the callback lines. Uh-huh. Uh, to the point where, uh, like, I it ended up influencing me because normally when you go to the movie theater, you just sit there quietly and watch it. And even mm-hmm. if you're watching a bad movie and you and your friends think it's bad, you might, like, whisper, like, you know, things that you would say uh, about the movie, but you don't say them out loud. Uh-huh. Whereas at Rocky, you scream them. Uh-huh. Uh, and... Uh, so that's just that completely different aspect of something that we do all the time, you know, go uh-huh. to movies and it's, there is one way to do it, sit there quietly. Whereas with Rocky, it is completely different where yeah. people are performing what's going on on the screen. And then you have people shouting out lines uh, at the screen. Yeah. And so this in part uh, ended up influencing uh, my writing uh, since a lot of the stuff that I do is more experimental. So it's taking stuff, uh, that already exists and uh, mixing it up or presenting it in a different way. Uh, and Rocky Horror was absolutely an influence on that, which, although that's that's why I always uh, tell my students in the cult films class that I don't show Rocky Horror because just sitting quietly in a dark room watching Rocky Horror, you have not seen Rocky Horror. Uh-huh. And so I tell them to go uh, and see a performance of it as soon as they can. Well, if by chance it comes up for you in class, this fall, in October before Halloween at Theater of Lawrence, there will be a weekend of Rocky Horror performed mm. on stage. That's awesome. And Theater Lawrence is on the west side of, of Lawrence, so it kind of makes it easy for people who actually live in Topeka if they want to come and see it. <laughs> I don't know where, where your students are. They mostly live in Topeka. They live all over the place. Yeah. yeah. Cool. <laughs> anyway, cool stuff going on. So I, I this is really interesting to me, and there's so many questions I want to ask, but I also want to say let's just sneak in some of your writing right now we're talking about some of your influences how about something you you brought some writing to share a little bit and again um for people to remember that andy will be part of a big tent reading on thursday may 24th um, which starts at 7 p.m at the raven bookstore on 6th street just between mass and new hampshire in downtown lawrence and the readers that night will be hadara bar nadav I apologize if I'm not saying it right, Andy Farkas and Louise Krug, who also happens to be a wonderful writer and professor at Washburn yeah, University, where you are. great colleague. She's yeah. awesome, yeah. Uh, so the piece that I'm going to read is called Timbuktu, uh, and it uh, it is one of the short stories in my collection, self-titled debut. Uh, and so I think I'll just go ahead and read it. Okay. Uh, Timbuktu. Go to Timbuktu, an island paradise. Stand on the beach. Gaze at the beauty of the sun shining upon the crystal blue water, the white sand. It will blind you, but gaze upon it. You'll be glad you did. While you're blind, reaching for your sunglasses, hat, green shade visor, are you a green shade visor kind of person? Wonder. Think about the walrus and the carpenter's plan to clean up the beach. Think about how an hourglass company would clean up here. Here, do not think about the past. Do not worry about the future. Instead, think only of the present, of the brilliant shining sun, of the opalescent waves, of the bleached rolling dunes in the distance. Let yourself fade away. Enjoy the weather of Timbuktu. Walk across the island. Notice how the temperature is exactly what you'd want it to be if someone asked you. Do not think about how no one ever asks you, about anything, how most things occur against your will. Instead, realize that throughout Timbuktu, the temperature varies from 64 degrees to 95 degrees. Depending on your taste, you can experience any climate at any time. There is even snow on top of Mount Timbuktu, and the dunes of the beach wrap around and form a small desert. But for most, it is perpetually spring and summer, and summer and spring. Do not think about how your own seasons are winter and fall without end, how the days are getting shorter and shorter year-round. Instead, bask in the constant light, in the climate that almost seems designed for you and you alone. 
plan a family gathering in Timbuktu. Near where the beach meets the boardwalk, see a wedding party. The bride dressed in white, the groom in black. Wonder if there has ever been a wedding where the bride wore black, the groom white. Think of a marriage ceremony where both wear gray. Do not think about your own relationships. Weddings are joyous events the world over, but especially in Timbuktu. Here, family and friends come together in paradise to celebrate a union that will never be broken. Do not think about the 50% divorce rate. Do not think about your own failing, failed marriage. Do not think about how your spouse cheated on you for years. Do not think about the bitter divorce proceedings. Instead, watch the end of the ceremony. Catch the bouquet. Do not think about pollen allergies. Instead, hand the bouquet to a cute little girl. Hug the bride. Shake the groom's hand. Welcome them to Timbuktu as if you own the place. Leave the happy couple with a quiet tip of your green shade visor. Timbuktu has gourmet restaurants and classy lounges. Stop off at one of our local watering holes. Enjoy an aperitif. Wonder if the pre-dinner drink has such a fancy name so people can sound sophisticated while consuming alcohol on an empty stomach. Have a large meal or a light snack, prepared by our culinary experts at one of our fine eateries. Do not think about how many people are starving in the world. Do not think about why it's still necessary to get drunk when you're away from your dark, depressing home life. Instead, indulge in a decadent piece of chocolate cake. You'll be glad you did. Go to a bar. Have a rum drink. Hit on a member of the opposite sex. On a member of the same sex. Do not drink straight rum by yourself. Do not drink out of the bottle. Wonder how you got back to your hotel room. Wonder who put the green shade visor on you. Play 9 or 18 on our world-famous golf links. Relax your legs. Take an athletic stance. Grip the club firmly, but not too tight. Plant your feet, keep your arms straight, bring your arms back, keep your eye on the ball, bring your weight back, keep your eye on the ball, bring your arms forward, keep your eye on the ball, bring your weight forward, keep your arms straight, follow through. Sand trap. Do not think about the hourglasses. Do not think about the minutes of your life that are draining away. Do not think about how you could use your time more wisely. Do not think about the little oysters tricked by the promise of fun into following the walrus and the carpenter to certain doom. Pick up the club. You can get out of the sand trap. Give yourself more credit. You'll be glad you did. Water hazard. Do not think repeat ad nauseum. Try your luck at Timbuktu's glamorous casino. Do not think about how your luck has been so rotten lately. Do not think about how money doesn't buy happiness, for that's a cliché. Do not think about the look of quiet desperation that seems to be on everyone's faces. Do not think about the cacophonous sound generated by the slot machines, and how that sound is a siren for suckers, the poor oysters. Do not think about the lives of the natives or of those who cannot afford a Paradise Island getaway. Do not sit down at a table, any table, with a stack of $100 bills and throw them out there, until they're gone as if your losses were preordained. Instead, pursue Lady Luck. Believe in Lady Luck. Have fun. You'll be glad you did. There is always something to do in Timbuktu. Walk around the island in the late afternoon. See people fishing, windsurfing, parasailing, swimming, sunbathing, playing tennis, playing volleyball, eating, drinking. Do not think about how you never seem to fit in anywhere. How everything you try becomes a failure seems doomed to fail from the beginning. Instead, witness the beautiful sunset while sitting in a watering hole covered with aged maps. Do not wonder about your place in the world. The perfect location, Timbuktu. Timbuktu is not on the equator, although located at zero degrees latitude. Timbuktu is between the tropics, but it is not close to the tropics. It is far enough away to be considered outside the tropics. Timbuktu is near none of the continents, except for three of them. Timbuktu's tropical climate is due to a particular jet stream that cuts through the north and the south while being an eastern westerly. Timbuktu is a lone island in an archipelago. Timbuktu is closer than you think. Join us in Timbuktu for the celebration of festival. 
festival is the festival of celebrations. It is said on this day, many years ago, before Timbuktu was discovered by Ponce de Leon during his quest for the elusive fountain of youth, even before the original discovery of Timbuktu by the Viking Leif de Leon, an ancestor of Ponce, the people celebrated the first festival. And so, festival was born in commemoration of this day. Drink a rum drink in honor of this traditional celebration. Walk around the luau. See the children playing with the traditional festival dolls. Do not think about your lost childhood. Do not think about your children leading lost lives. Do not think. Visit the mysterious mountain cafe of Timbuktu. Leave the festival of festival. Gaze upon Mount Timbuktu. Climb to the top. Do not spill your drink. Throw away your green shade visor. It doesn't suit you. At the top, find a natural cafe playfully called the Cabbage King. The cafe was carved out of the rock of the mountain by erosion. The sheet metal, the glass windows, the slippery, shiny red stools, the large booths, even the neon sign are all part of the mountain itself. Absolutely authentic. Even the soda fountain, even the soda jerk, formed by wind and water erosion. Gaze upon this from the darkness. Do not think about death. 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 Instead, order their specialty, the vanilla milkshake with Hershey's chocolate syrup, all naturally occurring from the erosion of the mountain. Do not think about death. Do not think about death. Walk in through the naturally occurring glass and metal doors and sit on a naturally occurring vinyl stool. Do not think about death. Do not think about death. Look the soda jerk in the eye. Remember that knowing people always gets you something. Tell him Roy sent you. <laughs> So, so my reaction to that piece is like, it's this guided meditation gone awry. <laughs> when I... It starts out all beautiful and calm, and then these weird things happen, and then we get back to beautiful and calm, and these weird things happen. And when I originally wrote it, I, I don't know why, but I was reading all of these like vacation uh, pamphlets and websites. And so I decided that I wanted to write the nightmare vacation website. So. All right. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you are kind of odd, aren't you, Andy? <laughs> Mental. That was the better word I said. Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, though, uh, and this connects back to what I was talking about with, with the Rocky Horror Picture uh -huh. Show, is is that all of the like different insertions uh -huh. are just like the call out lines uh -huh. uh, that normally in movies you don't get, but with Rocky Horror, and I guess The Room now. I haven't seen The Room yet, but uh, that's another one that is performed, and there are uh, lines that people yell out during it. Uh -huh. uh, but yeah, so that's uh, there's the definite influence from Rocky Horror uh -huh. there. So. So do your students, do you read sometimes to your students or do they read some of your work? Mm. I mean, if they do, uh, it's on their own. Uh -huh. I, I mean, I tell them that I'm a writer, but uh -huh. uh, I've never required them. Like once in a while, I'll have a student who finds out about my work and will ask to buy my book or something uh -huh. like that. But, uh, but it won't get you a higher grade. Just make this. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> I always say that I'm uh, I'm absolutely open to bribery, but we have to start in the millions of dollars <laughs> so I can immediately retire on this bribe. So, my experience with those of you who are professors at Washburn and very talented writers is that that you don't make a big deal about with your students. And and my example is uh, so every year on World Suicide Prevention Day, I host this event called Word Saves Lives, and a couple years ago. Um, Eric McHenry, who at the time was the poet laureate of Kansas, as well as a you know wonderful writer, wonderful person, professor at Washburn, all that stuff. Eric was one of the readers, uh, one of the people at, that would be at the mic. Well, it turned out that one of his students was also going to be at the mic, mm -hmm. and his student didn't know that Eric was the <laughs> poet laureate and all this stuff, and he's like, oh, I didn't know, and then he's like. 
could you move me up so I could make sure that I could read while Eric's still here? It's like, absolutely. <laughs> I was like, well, that's interesting that you just didn't didn't know because uh, I mean, that's that's an honor uh, and I, responsibility. I had an experience like that <laughs> just uh, at the past AWP. Uh, I got to read with uh, Michael Martone. Oh, uh, your mentor. You exactly. Yeah. And this was the first time uh, that I got to do that. Uh -huh. And so I asked the people who were organizing uh, the reading if I could read right before him. Yeah. So uh, and so that was that was a lot of fun. I, and then I, I ended up writing a piece specifically for that about him. Oh, so <laughs> cool. Very cool. So what was it? Or, or is there anything in particular that you would say about him that that that's that is what made him a powerful influence on you and your development as a writer and teacher? So the uh, the style of workshopping uh, that I do where I said I try to be more uh, descriptive than prescriptive, uh -huh. well, I learned that from him. Uh -huh. uh, because in before that, I had been in uh, some workshops that were rather uh, prescriptive. There uh -huh. was one way to write a good story, uh, and if you wrote some other way, uh, then you were doing it incorrectly. Uh, ah. And uh, Michael Martone was uh, the professor who he did not operate like that at all. Uh -huh. Instead, he was just interested in figuring out what you wanted to do mm -hmm. uh, and then helping you get better at doing that. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so that's that's how I run my workshops now. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, he was he was absolutely the influence there. And then I had other professors who did that too, but he was uh, he was the one that I ended up talking to the most uh, because he was the first one that I ran into who was like that. Uh -huh. uh, but, and then over the years, you know, through talking to him uh, and uh, reading his work, then like he ended up being a big influence on me uh -huh. because of that. That's amazing and wonderful. And it's to me, it speaks to there's that the other the other side and what that does. I I joke about how it's in some ways a surprise that I ever got to really appreciating writing, not reading, but but writers and because my my high school English teacher <laughs> was so rigid and scary. It's like you're right or you're wrong is the way that that was the message that that sunk in my brain you know it's this way or that way it's not anything in between you know right. yeah. and that rigidity didn't work for me and it was really discouraging and really not appealing and so you know i've loved when i when i finally kind of some changes in my life and i started looking more at contemporary art contemporary and 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 local in, in addition to you know, just in, in general out in the world but but having that experience of there's a lot of variety there are a lot of ways of things and there are certain things that appeal to me that aren't like what you know i was told this is what it has to be right yeah <laughs> the, the old five paragraph theme model yeah. <laughs> so it's it's fun to experience this and so i can imagine for your students just as it was for you this this permission to and value like it, like, Hey, you've got something important you're wanting to write. Let's help you do it in the best way you can, as opposed to no, that never works. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, the, uh, the other thing uh, that I learned and I had multiple uh, uh, professors who said things like that, but in any workshop that you're in uh, like, if you can find, two or three people who respond well to your work, mm -hmm. uh, then that's really lucky. Uh, and uh, even though the professor is going to be the one who has done it the longest, the professor might not be the person who responds the best to your work. And by, you know, uh, being a good responder, that doesn't just mean that you're like good at always responding. Mm -hmm. There are just going to be the areas that certain people are really good at. And then, uh, the areas that they're not quite as good at. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you're always looking for the people in class who can do that. And it's, again, it's not always going to be the professor. It mm -hmm. might, there might be times where one of the students in class says, Oh, I think you're doing this and I can help you mm -hmm. uh, uh, get better at that. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And so that's that's another thing is that uh, Martone was really open to that sort of thing. Uh, but the first person that I heard actually say it that way, where you're looking for two or three people in class, was a writer named Paget Powell, who used to be at the University of Florida. I think he's retired now. Uh, but he was the first one that I heard say that, where he's like, I might not be the best person to respond uh uh, to your writing. And when he was saying that, he was saying it to the entire class. Mm -hmm. uh, he's like, but somebody else in here might be. And he's like, and so you should, you know, uh, listen to them and see if that, if you can be in contact with them, which is the other thing that you uh, find in workshops is uh, you make, uh, you establish relationships with other people in class and you mm -hmm. might be in touch with them forever. Mm -hmm. While I was writing my novel, uh, a friend of mine from the University of Tennessee workshop, so that was like 2002 to 2004, mm -hmm. uh, he, uh, he and I have stayed in touch and he read every single, he didn't just read the like final draft, he read every single draft of uh -huh. the novel. Uh, and his, his name is Louis Moise. Uh, and he helped me enormously. And the only reason that I know him is because we happen to be in, in that yeah, class together. Yeah. I've heard that from other people that these, there's this set of people that really gelled early on in their writing and that that's, those are their, their first critiques, you know, that to for each other, you know, that they're reading each other's stuff. It's really important. It's very personal. It's, it's not only a professional relationship, you know, they know each other, they, you know, there's this, support and the ability to give critical feedback as well as yeah <laughs> well i and the other thing about workshop is is that uh, uh one of the ways that it helps people get better is by uh teaching them to like read feedback and not immediately respond with well this person doesn't think i'm a genius so obviously right. they're an idiot right. uh and so it's uh, uh workshop is really good for that so in workshop do students also critique each other oh absolutely okay yeah. so here's my question do you do you have some ways that you teach how to how to actually give the feedback you know what i mean is uh well yes but it's more uh i think experiential so right, I, right. I, I believe, yeah not I, like a list of rules but i mean no. but helping people because you know there there's one part it's it's interesting to me in a variety of ways. Yesterday I was doing a little um, um, online workshop related to how people are affected by shame. And so it's, it's interesting because, of course, sometimes if, if we're hit in too personal of a way, then, then we shut down. You know, we have to kind of push away. And it doesn't mean that the person who gave us the feedback did it wrong. It, it just means that, that they hit a, a vulnerability that they had often no way of knowing, you know? So that, that whole thing about how we, how we can give meaningful feedback and how we can hear meaningful feedback. And I get that you have to, you have to do it. It's not like you can talk to somebody about this is, this is what it's going to be, but to work through the experiences. Well, one of the things that I do, and this uh, sometimes for a little while anyway, frustrates my students is, is I tell them that they're not allowed to use the word like, so they're not allowed to say, I like this, I mm -hmm. don't like this. Mm -hmm. And instead, they have to talk about what they think is working and what they think isn't mm -hmm. working. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's one way to uh, mitigate the, uh, the problem of being too personal. Because if you tell somebody something is working or something isn't working, mm -hmm. then that's different than, oh, this thing that you make, I don't like it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so then that seems more like a personal attack, whereas the working and not working doesn't seem quite like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other thing is, is that uh, since, you know, I've already said that you're looking for those two or three people who respond well to your work, uh, at, by saying that, uh, by focusing on what is like working or not, uh, you're saying, but I think that you could rewrite this and make it even better. Mm -hmm. uh, and so then it's, it's that idea. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, those are ways uh, the other, uh, Oh, one of the ways anyway is the like uh, and don't like that's not allowed in the workshop. But then the other thing is, is just by 
you know, since I've been in workshop for so long, uh, just by watching me. And so like one of the things which I don't intend is sometimes uh, in class, they will end up, uh, some of the students will end up sounding like me, uh-huh. uh, but that's only because they are like figuring out how to respond right, to things. Right. And so luckily that doesn't last for too long and then they figure out their own way. Yeah. Uh, so I think in learning, and I, I can't speak to learning about writing specifically, but I think in learning, there are times when I long for, give me an example of what that might sound like, you know, give me, because I'm not quite getting it. And so I know that when I'm doing presentations, when I'm talking about things in, in my realm of suicide prevention, suicide bereavement, et cetera, I sprinkle in a lot of stories and examples. Um, I met with a University of Kansas group a couple weeks ago who, who want to be able to do some things related to um, awareness of suicide and prevention of suicide. And so I wanted them to do some interactive exercises um, to practice doing some things. And I said, you know, let, let me just tell you, you know, sort of give you an example of how I might do some of this, you know? And so I gave, I created a scenario and said, you know, and so, so I said this and, and, and I kind of made them laugh with the example that I chose. And then I gave them a different scenario and said, so if you, you know, this is what's going on, you know, one of you is going to be the person who has this going on. One of you is going to be the person who's going to respond. Just practice and see what it's like for you to try to say something to bring up this topic, you know. Because I, I think that if we if we don't give any idea, if, we, if it's an alien idea to somebody, like, I have no idea. For me, what happens is I get caught up in, I'm going to do it wrong, I'm going to do it wrong, I'm going to do it wrong. Don't think about death, don't think about death. <laughs> and all I can think about is death, you know. Um so it says so there's a comfort in going, okay, this is one way that might, now I kind of have an idea. Um, so I, I love that, that kind of, it becomes a more personal way of teaching because like you said, it's not like presenting these rigid things and this is how you must do it. It's let's figure out your best way of doing what you really want to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and another thing that I uh, teach my students is, is that a lot of times after they've gotten feedback, it's a good idea to like, collect it all at the end, go home, shove it in a drawer, and don't look at it for a week or two Mm -hmm. weeks. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because then when you do look at it, it seems far less personal. Because Mm -hmm. at that point, you've mostly, like, you've maybe written down what people said in class, and then you have their written comments. Uh, And when you go back and see that later on, it feels completely different than after you've gone through the workshop. I'm smiling as I think about comments that happen in a different realm, like, comments that happen on on articles, you know, on publications, so online comments and, and the number of people who live for online comments <laughs> from my perspective, the cruelty they could impose. Yeah. And, and so I've learned to like if I'm if I'm quoted in something or I'm, you know, submitted an editorial about something that's being used, that it's just like I'm not I'm not gonna read the, the comments at all until I'm until I'm ready. And then and then this one it just delighted me because I'm writing about this this topic that I'm passionate about related to mental health and suicide prevention and and the person's response is basically I hope she's comfortable wearing a uniform because she's never going to get a job in her field. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, whatever, dude. Interesting what people think is good feedback or what they have, you know, whatever it does for them to write this, those weird comments. <laughs> so how did you settle on the kind of writing that, not settle on, how did you, how did you decide that you're not a poet, you're not a fantasy writer, this or that? How did, how do you develop, this is probably the kind of writing that really is my writing. How does that happen? Well, uh, I think it's a, a number of like different influences. Um, so I guess I started writing about when I was in uh, maybe eighth grade. Uh, a friend of mine in eighth grade was running his own zine, pretty much that he like made copies of at Kinko's mm-hmm. uh, and sold at Kinko's. Uh, I, I I think it was called the Bomb. Yeah, that was the that was. But, but actually, believe it or not, that was just before everybody started saying that's the oh, Bomb okay. to mean cool. Uh-huh. Uh, 
And so I was at the time, I was just like, it's called the bomb, whatever. Uh, and so I started writing and my influences at the time were, I watched a lot of the old uh, show Alfred Hitchcock presents uh -huh. and uh, the twilight zone. Uh, and at the time, anyway, I was reading, you know, Edgar Allan Poe, uh, so I, I consequently I started writing stuff like that. Uh, but then I I moved away from that writing because I also read uh, newspapers a lot at the time, and particularly I would read columnists. Uh, so I read uh, the two national ones were uh, Dave Barry and Mike Royko were the ones that okay. I read, and that was uh, just because they were syndicated in the Akron Beacon Journal. Uh -huh. uh, and then the more local one was uh, a guy named uh, Dick Fagler. Uh, and all of these, uh, all three of them, they wrote humor columns. And so that's what I started writing. And so I wrote those in high school. And then when I got to Kent State. Wait, so there's Twilight Zone and there's humor. Okay, okay yeah. just making sure I follow. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and Which so, came across in that uh, Timbuktu piece. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, so so I, I had those influences. And then I was, you know, a fan of like Weird Al Yankovic uh -huh. and Dr. Demento. And so that is, you know, making fun of established forms a lot of times. Uh -huh. uh, and so all of these things, like after I was kind of done writing humor columns, uh, like I did in high school and uh, college, uh, I finally got to a point where the humor column form, I was just sort of done with it. Uh -huh. Uh, and so after that, I had started reading uh, Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, and uh, then later on, uh, Thomas Pynchon. Uh, and so those, so those writers ended up influencing me. Uh -huh. And as I read them, like the other thing was, is that, like I said, early on, I was in workshops that were very prescriptive and they were very prescriptive towards realism, which is fine if that's what you want to write. But uh, all of the influences I've listed, uh -huh. none of them are really realist. Uh -huh. uh, and so consequently, I ended up uh, uh, being attracted to those. And uh, then the cult films stuff uh, like Rocky Horror mm -hmm. that I uh, brought up. And then uh, one time I, uh, uh, because I had watched all of the Evil Dead movies, I ended up talking to Bruce Campbell on the telephone briefly. And so I was influenced by those. Uh -huh. uh, and so uh, particularly later on with Vonnegut and Thomas Pynchon, who were influenced by the very high and the very low. Uh -huh. And so that's what I started to bring together. So I, I bring together the like terror of death with like a paradise island getaway uh in this story and so i feel like that is the uh the sort of thing that you know my entire writing career has been awesome. leading towards yeah. so so part of it and it makes sense part of it is you know sort of when you were born what you were exposed to in different ways what you chose to to you know what you were drawn to but, but uh that that is so interesting to me because i think about when you're mentioning like Weird Al, so we have two sons, um, and I and they're they're both post college, and and so I'm trying to get things. You need to take your shit, or we're gonna at some point we have to get rid of it. And so I find this box, this cardboard box, and it's got this careful lettering by um, that I recognize by a young friend of my son's. I was like, I wonder what's in here. And I open it up and it's an autographed Weird Al photo. Oh, <laughs> and brought me back to all those crazy Weird Al songs that they liked and, and how they would give you, they would they would uh, burn CDs with songs, you know? And, and it's like, oh my God, this is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never got Weird Al's uh, autograph, but I met uh, Dave Barry one time. Uh -huh. So I got, I got his. And then I sent away uh, to Dr. Demento and I got his uh, autograph. So yeah. we uh, have Dr. Demento Christmas CD. <laughs> yeah. But, but so that, that sort of stuff uh, influenced yes. me along with, you know, uh, something like gravity's rainbow, which uh -huh. is a big influence yeah. on my novel. So yeah. I took a weird class that was called contemporary American literature or something, which is how I knew and read. Thomas Pinter. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and at some point it inspired writing this thing um, because, of course, he's not photographed. Right. right. 
And so making up this story about finding this photograph. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so interesting things that you mentioned. Uh, so, so we find, you know, people who are going to create art find, you know, that they, they have influences that are kind of thrust on them. And then they also kind of wander. And the ones they the track ones down. That really, that really were, which is interesting. Right. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut, I just randomly stumbled into him uh -huh. uh, because I I remember I've always been a night person. Uh, and so I was when I was a teenager, one time I was up late just flipping through the stations uh -huh. uh, and I stumbled on the film version of Slaughterhouse Five. Uh -huh. And I watched some of it and I, I didn't really know what to make of it at the time. Uh -huh. And then I, I don't know how, but years later when I was in college, I remembered that movie and I was like telling somebody about it. And I, strangely, I remembered the title, but I only remembered some like snippets. Uh -huh. And so I just thought it was a movie at the time. Mm -hmm. I did not know it was a book. Uh -huh. And the person I was talking to was like, well, you could read the book. I don't know where the movie, you know, where you can find the movie, but you can just read the book. There uh -huh. are tons of copies of it. Uh -huh. And I was like, Oh, and, and so I, I ended up reading it because of that. Uh -huh. uh, and Later on, I was in a class where I was assigned to read it. Uh, but when I got that, I was—I really felt like I was on this expedition that, uh -huh. like, I had, you know, stumbled upon. So, Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, it was the same with uh, a, a writer that uh, a couple of other writers who uh, influenced me, Laurie Moore and Donald Barthelme, where. <laughs> I just started describing something that I was thinking about writing and people were like, Oh, you should read, you know, uh, how to be a writer, uh, uh, -huh. uh how to become a writer, excuse me. Uh, and, uh, and then works by Donald Barthelme too. And so it's just like, you have the ones that are obviously like, you know, influences because they were thrust on you and then ones you just stumble into. Uh -huh. So, uh -huh. Did you do other kinds of creative things in addition to writing at some points and then settle on writing as this is really me? Uh, I, I writing. Uh, so since I started it in, uh, in eighth grade, I guess that was the early one. Uh, and I, like I, I took an acting class once, but I, I definitely realized that whereas I'd be happy to write plays and screenplays, uh -huh. which I have, uh, but uh, whereas I'd be happy to do that, I had absolutely no interest in being okay. on stage. Okay. Uh, and then, unfortunately, I like I took tons of art history classes because I love uh, art history, uh, but I have absolutely no visual artistic skills. Okay. So, uh, so I, I end up. Um, like I have friends who have fantastic like uh, uh, visual artistic skills, uh -huh. but not me. Uh -huh. So no, so it has been always writing for me. Uh -huh. You are good at reading your work though, in terms of for you reading and me listening to it. Yeah. And, and I say that um, having heard people who are really good at it, people who are really great writers, but not very good at reading even their own work, you know what I mean? That, so there's a performance aspect to that. I was I was really lucky because uh, for early in my writing career, I wasn't in places where there were a lot of readings mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't even necessarily think about uh, reading as being a part of writing. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I say that, I mean giving public readings. Right. Uh, and so, like, early on, I wasn't any mm -hmm. good at it. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I got, uh, when I ended up moving to Chicago, like, I found all of these various reading series, either through friends or just through research. Uh -huh. uh, and since there were quite a lot of them, uh, I was able to give a number of readings. And so during that time, I got uh, more confidence in uh -huh. giving public readings. Although the, the readings in like really dark bars where there's no podium are still like <laughs> the <laughs> most difficult ones. <laughs> I, I gave a reading one time in, uh, uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, where I got up to the microphone and I'm like, I'm sorry, I just can't see. Like, it's just uh -huh. too dark in here. Uh -huh. And so then they like went and found some lights. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, so I, I was, I was really lucky uh, when I was in Chicago that I was able to give 
quite so many readings. Uh-huh. Uh, and during that time, I was I really figured out how to do it, uh-huh. uh, at least the way that it works for me. There, uh-huh. there are other people like, I, I don't know, I, I kind of think of uh, my reading style is more Johnny Cash-like in, in that I, I do the same kind of thing each time, uh, whereas I know other people, it almost seems like we should take the like story away from them and just have them act it out because they're really, they're really giving physical performances while they're reading. I, I enjoy hearing and then also having on the page, you know. So for me, there's something that is enhanced by having the extra time of being able to, to go back and read it on the page and still to, to hear that, that author's voice in my head. Oh, it enhances it so much. Absolutely. And then uh, the other thing that uh, came out of all of uh, giving the public readings is that uh, I definitely think about how each one of my uh, uh, pieces sounds. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I read it out like while I'm writing, I will write, then read it out loud, write, read it out loud. And that's how I figure out uh-huh. um, if it's working or not. Uh-huh. Because if it sounds weird, then I, I need to change Weird in it. the wrong way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess I should say if it sounds awkward. Think, yeah. So at Washburn, where you teach, do the students have some reading opportunities? Do, is that something that's that happens within the departments? Uh, yeah, there's a, a regular open mic that the students can read at, nice. uh, and. Uh, they can either read their own work or just to get them used to like giving readings they uh-huh. can they can read other people's work uh-huh. uh, so they're they're able to do that and the other thing is is that in my lifetime I've seen just the reading scene explode uh-huh. I, I I know that one reading that I did uh, right out of undergrad was the only reading that I knew about in town. And now Uh there are quite a few more Uh uh, all over the place. Uh, So it's not just in Chicago that there are a lot of readings. It just Uh happened that in my lifetime, that was the first place that I went to where I started thinking about readings and then was able to find uh, Uh quite a few of them. Uh But now it seems like just about everywhere I go, there are uh, reading series connected to bookstores or uh, bars or you know, other venues like uh, art galleries uh-huh. and things like that. Uh-huh. And uh, universities more and more have uh, their own reading series uh-huh. and stuff like that. Uh-huh. So when I first, uh, when I started at Washburn, I think it was about a month in, uh, I gave a reading at Washburn. So, uh-huh. uh, but yeah, so the the entire reading scene is, has gotten bigger and bigger and uh, has become more a part of the the writing scene than I think it was before. Uh-huh. Because you said that uh, Thomas Pynchon is not photographed. Well, I can't imagine him giving a reading. Like, <laughs> uh, so that wasn't a part of his, uh, you know, writing world. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's definitely a part of the writing world now. And it is, it is a part that uh, I'm excited about, in part because I have zero interest in acting, but uh, in being an actor myself, I mean. Uh, but giving readings is a way for me to deliver my work in a different way to people. So you teach, you write, you have some things that have been published. You've, you're involved with with editing for some online journals and such. Um, are you in the process of something that's going to be out in the world in print with a certain deadline? Uh, so I, I don't have anything uh, under contract right now, but mm-hmm. I'm... I have two more books of short stories uh, that I'm trying to get published uh, and a novel. And now I'm working on uh, a creative nonfiction collection uh, called uh, The Great Indoorsman, which is the way. uh, (laughs) uh, But that's that's the way a a friend of mine uh, described me in Chicago uh, because people were. Uh, going camping and they asked me to go and my friend Maria immediately said Andy's not going he's the great endorsement <laughs> you accept that challenge oh uh, yes that is that is completely acceptable to me but yes so uh that collection is uh, it's I guess kind of personal essays uh and all of them except for one takes place indoors for the most part so, yeah. <laughs> but Timbuktu that's outside all right 
<laughs> well, yeah, and then the uh, uh, the stuff that happens to me outside and the great endorsement is is not very good. <laughs> so, <laughs> is any of that going to be shared in your reading at the Raven? Uh, yeah, actually, I think I'm going to read from the essay, the great endorsement. Okay, so. people, so be tempted. You can hear something brand new. <laughs> And, and we're at the end of the hour, so I want to remind people, this is Andy Farkas. He is part of the Big Tent Reading that's coming up on Thursday, May 24th, starting at 7 at the Big Tent Reading Series at Raven Bookstore. If you haven't ever been to one of those, go just because. Um, if you have, go because you know how cool it is to hear people who are reading from their works get to see sort of what it's like experiencing them, hearing them, meeting them. Perhaps you buy a book and get it signed by one of those people, you know? Seeing other people who are there interested in reading, it's a, it's a free event. Um, and so buy stuff at Raven, support that. Buy stuff from authors who read at Raven, support them. Yes. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Oh, what fun. And listeners, I know you enjoyed this and we get to thank Daniel Smith who produces the show. Thank you, Daniel, for making it possible for people to hear these conversations. And thanks and so long to our listeners.